Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Cavalry Audio. Are you fucking kidding me? For the one guy that's worried about keeping the podcast, you're on like one minute before the guest. You don't know what the fuck I'm going. That's fine. Right then now. You, next, to, uh, I Jesus yeah, okay. Christ. Then respond and get on and say I can't do it. I'm on. Jesus fucking Christ. What are you going I'm through? On. What are you going through? Trying to fit into that pink robe behind you? No, you dick. I'm coming off of my fucking anti-depression medication. I'm having the craziest withdrawal symptoms that are fucking me up really, really badly. So I'm trying to deal with it. And uh, it's not, I'm not feeling great right now. And I've had to wake myself up. And uh, it's nothing you'd understand because you're fucking perfect. I, I'm not perfect, but I'm so. closer than you. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. Good God. Don't get on all fucking crab ass. We're not doing Michael Ian Black's interview with you coming out of some fog. How about this? Stay on the antidepressant and kill the weed for a week. <clears throat> I got you in the weed. It's the toss up. Do I want to fucking sweat or do I want to be not crazy? I don't know, man. It's a hard one. Yeah, but you don't even know that that if you get off your antidepressant, that you're going to start sweating. Pretty think, sure, because it's starting to happen. You know, good. Are I, you sweating right now? On the inside. Uh, <clears throat> no. I mean, here's the thing. I've been on this fucking antidepressant, which I'm not depressed. It was for anxiety. I was in Nashville. Blah blah blah. For five and a half years, I don't even need to be on it really. But just generally don't need to be on it it's just been a part of my daily routine and now I'm coming off of it because I got to figure out my body and why I'm not perspiring and I we've talked about this but prior you know when I was on it in my 20s at the same thing and I went off my my Celexa and you know I started to sweat again I'm sure this is the reason why I'm not sweating because I'm starting to sweat again a little bit good but the withdrawal symptoms of this which, you know, I didn't have last time for whatever reason, are just fucking gnarly. They're not fun. How many it's milligrams crazy. were you on? Like a, a heavy dose on, or a middle dose? I was dose on or 20. Or I don't even know. I don't even know. I was on 20 milligrams 
and then you know I weaned off to two and to two and a half very slowly, and then you know I stopped. <clears throat> it's not uncommon. Of course, I've been reading about it, but it's just not. Uh, no, that yeah, that's it's well not known. Fun. I think it's good, I, especially if you're starting to perspire. That's exciting. Yeah, no, it's good. It's it's just not fun, dude. It's borderline, you know, nutty. And uh, in the morning, it's just when you're foggy and whatever. You wake up and you're like, "Fuck!" You don't feel like you're. You feel like you're. There's multiple kinds of symptoms, but it's like you're disconnected from your body. You're disconnected from reality, just slightly. You know, it's like, "Woo, fuck!" You know, and then it's just, it's weird. It's really, really weird. Sounded for Um, a minute like you were doing lyrics from a John Mayer song. (laughs) I wish my body was a wonderland. I can tell you that <laughs> it's not a wonderland. So, but yeah, mine's awesome. <laughs> no, I'm starting to feel better even right now. I, it's just that when I wake up, when I this morning especially, I wake up and just like, whoa, fuck, man. First of all, I usually wake up at like seven o'clock normally. I get up and it's like eight forty. I'm like, Jesus, I have weirdest dreams. I dreamt I was sweating. <laughs> Good. Last night I dreamt I was sweating. Maybe your mind <laughs> is just going to start telling your body either while you're sleeping or you can't. You, couldn't you just pack My body yourself is in? telling me yes. If you wore that hoodie to bed and cranked the heat up. No. Would you not sleep in Mm-mm. sweat? No, that's not how it works. <laughs> no. It's like people that have been through COVID who can't taste or smell they're supposed to i've read where you burn uh an orange peel and you eat Mm -hmm. the orange peel to get your sense of smell and taste back so you have to do something to to kickstart the engines here and get them right well i've tried you know i've tried like infrared sauna blah 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 but it's not that's not the way it works with this i don't think there's a kickstart you know but it's it's happening slowly, slowly. It's just uh, I can tell this you this will end. If, this if will I end were listening to this podcast right now, I would have definitely stopped listening by this. No, point. I, see, I disagree. This was one of our newest intros ever. Me screaming at you, and then sort and, of and I would coming to delete it. Uh, no way. I, I would unsubscribe because I'm so tired of hearing these two guys whine. It's not whining. I mean, it's just my reality, you know, and I wasn't planning on coming on and, uh, you know, sort of talking about this this morning. But when you're giving me shit, Mike, what's up? How are you? Hi, so, Michael Ian Black. How are you, brother? Mm-hmm. Good to see you again. Uh, so here's what's going, here, here's what's going on. <laughs> that was your answer that, uh, how you doing? The f- yeah, mm-hmm. whatever. Well, hey, uh, I can relate to that. What a lovely sunroom you have there. Thank you home. so much. Yes, mm. in the uh, where are you? New York, Connecticut. Where are you? That's right. The wilds of Connecticut is where. Yeah, I it looks Connecticut-y. Yeah, yeah, it is. It but is. Michael, I'm like an Ansel Adams just, picture. Let me just explain to you what's happening right now. Okay, so I, I'm I was late getting on. We usually do a little preamble, and I was a little late getting on. I'm fucking tired, and here's what's happening. Okay, I've been on antidepressants. I've been on uh, Lexapro for about five and a half years. I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I'm coming off of it. 
down to two and a half milligrams. I've been weaning off very nicely. And then I, boom, I stopped like I should. These fucking withdrawal symptoms that I'm having are so gnarly. And it's just making my life a bit insane. What are the and Joe comes on like, what the fuck, dude? You're on 30 seconds before and giving me shit. So I'm yelling at him. And, and now I'm trying to explain what's happening. And then you come on. So I'm just downloading you. Yeah. I mean, uh, what are the symptoms? Anger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> General lethargy. It's just you, def- you feel like disconnected from your body. Out. You know, it's you're just tired and you're disconnected, and it's like these brain zaps. And you why know, you feel like you're you getting off the pills? The pills are terrific. They're great. No, I know. Well, here's the thing. I, I don't. I don't necessarily need them. I, I sounds seems like, like I do yeah. now. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> I agree. What, you're what making the case for Lexapro or whatever the hell you're on. It's fucking, it was fucking up my body in a way that is not allowing me to perspire and sweat. Okay. Oh, that's weird. So it's very strange. And it happened in my 20s, went off of it. And I was back on about five years ago. And this last year started happening. I'm not able to sweat. And it's been, that's been screwing me up. So as I've come off, it's starting to sweat a little bit. So I know that this is the reason. So it's what I was saying to Joe it's either sanity or sweating. And I have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. How much do you value perspiration? A lot. <laughs> clearly. A lot. You know, yeah, I mean, but- when he puts it that way, that's a really good question. I mean, you're valuing perspiration over sanity. It's <laughs> it, This is apples or oranges, and oranges no, th- will lead you this to This will a- end, though. I mean, these, these withdrawals will end, I, I hope. But but at that point, let's, uh, so the withdrawal symptoms end. You're, you're mm-hmm. sweating. I mean, yeah. you, you can't, the sheen is unbelievable. You can't believe the sheen. Oh God. Yeah. And then, right now. and then mentally what happens to you? Like depression wise, what happens to you? No, nothing. You know, so, so I, I was doing a show in Nashville for two years, right? I had three kids, the back and forth. I was nuts. This was about five, five or six years ago. And I started to have this anxiety and boom, I had a bit of an anxiety attack and I started to fall into these old patterns of anxiety that I had in my early 20s. Not as bad, but they were getting there. And so I said, oh, fuck, man, I don't want to go down that road again because that was really bad. And so then I went back on, I went back on an antidepressant. And uh, it it worked. It sort of evened me out, but I didn't need to be on it for my, for that long. I, I just it just became a part of my daily routine. Right. When I even after I finished Nashville three and a half four years ago, you know. So that's the thing. I don't need them to survive to really regulate me. You know, I needed it for a specific situation, but I overshot it basically. Mm. Had a experience. Oh, uh, maybe a year ago, where I've been on Citalopram, one of those, mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the prescription expired, and I was kind of too lazy to refill the prescription, so I went cold turkey. <laughs> yeah. And then about 10 days to two weeks later, I was in the darkest place I feel like I've ever been in. Mm. And, and it and it 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 took me a minute to understand that those two events might be related. 
Like right. it, <laughs> you'd think <laughs> I would have connected that sooner. But yeah. I, I feel like my wife helped me connect it. And then uh, she was like, yeah, you really need to get back on those things. And I did. And it's that I'm I'm ever grateful that I did because that was really with wonderful. unexpired medication. Expi- right? I don't know. I bought them from a guy. I, I didn't check the date. I don't a guy. You bought them from a guy. <laughs> it was a guy. I don't know. <laughs> you had a white coat on. I don't, I don't know. Oh man, <clears throat> hey, feel free, Michael, just to dump out of this. I if I got on a podcast and the host was talking about how depressed he was, I don't know that I'd continue on with the interview. But that's are you kidding? I, I'm much more interested in talking about somebody's uh, somebody else than myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, look, I'm not. By the way, I'm not depressed. I'm just going through the shit. You know what I mean? But thanks for listening, Mike, and uh, we'll see you next time, bud. No, this was great. I really appreciate it. And you know, honestly, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, like however you want to handle it, it's fine. With yeah. it. <laughs> yes. Good. So, well, shouldn't you, shouldn't you be in a stadium right now? I mean, the, the the season is kicked off, and yeah, you would think. I don't do a ton of baseball. Um, I do a lot more football, but uh, I, I had a game this past week, which was one of these where I was in. I live in St. Louis, so I was in a studio in St. Louis. The game was Atlanta at Philadelphia, so the game's in Philly. The guy I do the games with John Smoltz was in Atlanta, and our producer and director were in L.A. So. We're kind of piecing all of that together and trying to make it seem as normal as possible. And for the most part, it sounds okay. It's just hard to – I'm just doing a game off TV, which for convenience sake is great. I don't have to leave there and go scramble to the airport. But for actual performance in the job, it's it makes it a little bit tougher. And we had audio dumped out and – Video was bad, and I'm trying to fake my way through this thing. So it was a bit of a hectic Saturday, but that's you know that's where we are. I think when that happens, you just do swing and a miss. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, you're going to be right most of the time. Yeah, fouled off to the right. You're just playing the odds. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that's you just got a piece of it. <laughs> I mean, that could be anything. That could be anything. You know, I. I, I have known you, Michael, tangentially through people you've worked with. I've been friends with Rudd mm-hmm. forever. So I've heard through him how brilliant your comedy is. And when I do the research, go through it about you, I mean, we have this show Daddy Issues that that has a through line of everybody's got daddy issues. Some are good, some are bad, some are whatever. Uh, not neither one of the two, but I... I feel like you're one of the first people that we've talked to that really thinks about this a lot, where you've written an op-ed piece uh, after a mass shooting. You have a son that you're raising, and you've basically written a book that's kind of a an open letter to him in a way. Basically, it sounds like I didn't write a book. It sounds like yeah. you're putting a Well, I on. wrote a book. Mine was basically. <laughs> I, I mine was basically. So I can't project onto you, but you really think about this stuff, which I'm I'm a bit intimidated to talk because we kind of joke about the fact that we're not professionals talking about this. I know you're not, but this is something that, you know, how to raise kids and specifically a son in today's world is uh it's becoming more and more difficult, I feel. It's certainly become more nuanced, I think, than it used to be. I think it used to be, you know, you have a, a son in particular and you just sort of say, go play outside and you check back in in 18 years. 
And uh, <laughs> that doesn't seem to be working as well these days mm-hmm. because, because um, we've culturally, we've spent a lot of time over the last 25 years looking at the girls and going, Hey, we really need to like lift up girls and give them this message, important message of empowerment um, and equality and uh, sexual agency and all this stuff, all of which is super important. And I'm really glad we've done that. There has been a cost, I think, to the way boys are being raised. The, mm. the, the, same, the same, you know, you, it, it's sort of funny to, to, to think like we haven't paid enough attention to the boys when for the history of humanity, basically boys have always, always pay, been paying attention to. But I think it's true that because we have spent so much time focusing on girls' girls needs um, and lifting up girls and kind of redefining where girls fit in the culture, that that has had some unintended, unintended consequences on boys. Mm. And what are what are those? Um, in my case, a little in too your, handsome. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. I know. <laughs> I, I think it's it is interesting, and I've read a lot of a lot of what you've put out there, and I, and I agree with so much of it. I, I think it is interesting to put it in that context, though, because now mm-hmm. we're we're on the back end as as the three of us talk of a couple more shootings, and and there's this like this kind of rage that seems to be out there or these disenfranchised people that are looking for some outlet and they're lonely and they're what they don't have as you talk about kind of a, an avenue to explore some of the stuff that uh that maybe we did when we were a kid i know for me i mean i i, I was a lot more free as a kid than i think kids are today you know for mm-hmm. me in the midwest to be able to ride my bike all the hell all over the place and kind of have my own responsibility and be, you know, I, I had to be respectful of dinner time. But prior to dinner time, I mean, my parents didn't really know where I was and I wasn't doing anything nuts, but I was on my own and having some something that I had control of. And I think I think some of that has been taken away uh, and and maybe rightfully so with how crazy this world seems to be. But it, it I, I don't know where can you put it into better words than I just tried to put it into? <laughs> Um, I can try, and you know, I thought those words were fine. Uh, Thank you. Swing and so miss. Um, <laughs> yes, got a piece of it. <laughs> I think <sighs> the first part of what you said is absolutely right. Like we're on the back end of these shootings, and you know, knock on wood, there won't be any in the next few days. But who knows? Um, and so that's what got me interested in thinking more deeply about this topic to begin with. After Sandy Hook, where I'm raising my kids right next door to Sandy Hook, um, I really started paying attention to it. And then later, after um, the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, um, and I started asking the question, which I, I I just had never asked and I didn't hear anybody else asking the question. And it seems so obvious in retrospect. And the question is simple. Like, why is it always boys who are committing these crimes? Why is it always boys pulling the trigger? Like I was, I was someone inclined to blame loose gun laws and, you know, corrupt politicians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I still do. However, 
the element of like masculinity in that I felt like mm. was, wasn't receiving any attention. And then whatever you feel about him with the election of Donald Trump, we certainly saw the trope rising of the angry white man. I mean, it had been in the culture before, but I think it really kind of came to the fore with the election of Donald Trump. And so I was just asking like, why, like what, what, what's going on with guys and when I started looking into it and when I started researching the book that I was writing, and again, I'm not an expert. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a C-list comedian. Um, <laughs> but when I started looking at it and really getting into the topic, what I started to realize is that there's deep historical roots to explain kind of what we're going on as a culture and what's going on with men in general. The easiest way, the easiest place to kind of to, to pin that would be the, um, you know, the, 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 the feminist movement of the, let's say, mid to late 60s, you know, moving forward, when women really were able to move into the culture in a way that they hadn't been able to before, enter the workplace, establish financial autonomy, the introduction of the pill into the culture. And women were suddenly creating power for themselves, power that had been denied to them throughout history. And that is going to have an effect on every aspect of the culture, uh, not the least of which is men's participation in the economy, men's control over women, men's um, and at a sort of more fundamental level, men's, the way men think of themselves and their roles in the culture. When that all starts to shift, and then you combine that with globalization and technological um, innovations, there's a, seg there's a segment of men and boys who feel like, I don't know what I'm supposed, I don't know who I'm supposed to be anymore. And that creates a lot of unease. And some of that gets man, you know, a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of that ends up getting manifested in these, you know, mass shootings, for example. Mm -hmm. But we see it in other ways too. We see it, you know, in we see it in um, uh, the Times Up movement and, and the Me Too movement. We see those behaviors sort of really examined and looked at, and and we see the reaction to that when men are going, whoa, 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 you know, like. Are you telling me like I, I can't look at a woman? You tell me I can't give a woman a compliment? And you see like all this froth in the culture. Some of it is necessary and healthy, and some of it is just a mess. That was mm -hmm. a long-winded answer. I don't know. No, if it's no, no, I think it's awesome. brilliant. It, it's great yeah. because the timing of it, I mean, you can't deny the timing of everything you're saying. I love what you said, Mike. You know, Michael, it's it's I have two boys and then I also have a little girl. How much do you think though? How much do you think parenting is really where this comes from? You know, because essentially, you know, we parent the way that we were parented and sometimes trying to break that cycle, sometimes trying to emulate. Um, how much of this also do you think is just ingrained into the male just from a primal standpoint? I'm just trying to get a little deeper into it, you know, um, and how much of this is actual, actually cultural right now? So I think you're asking two different questions. The first question is okay. how much, uh, like, how much is parenting itself to blame for sort of mm -hmm. where we are? That's the first question. The second is how much of aggression, like how much of this sort of aggressive 
at times criminal behavior is biological. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer the second question first and because it's easier for me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the biological answer. I don't know. However, I do think some of it is biological. I, I, I think it would be hard to explain the prevalence of violence in uh, the male of our species versus the female of the species without attributing it some of, attributing some of it to biological uh, 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 foundations. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has to be. That being said, there are biological instincts that we as guys have that we curb all the time. I mean, we mm-hmm. have terrible <laughs> instincts as men, <laughs> you know, like we just know we do. Um, whether it's in people in general, but like, you know, the number of like women I have seen on the street who I've been like, God, you know, I'd love to be with her. You don't do it. You're curbing some sort of biological instinct. The same has to be true for violence. The same has to be true with all of, uh, the impulses that we have that are counterproductive to not only our own happiness, but the larger culture as a whole. Like that's just what society is. Society is just figuring out like, okay, how do we not destroy each other? Mm -hmm. So we, so although I do think violence is probably somewhat ingrained in men, Mm -hmm. I think we can do a better job of curbing it. In terms of parenting, I think, I, I think I'd be a fool to say that parenting doesn't play an enormous role in terms of how just keeping the conversation to boys, boys think of their place in the world and express themselves in the world and um, mature or not. That being said, I don't think parenting, I think parenting is a component, a big component, but there are other components as well. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting because there's also, you're dealing with morality in a way. Morality is ever evolving. Okay, a hundred years ago, morality was just a different concept than it is today. So it's funny, we're almost chasing a moving target in, in a sense. Now, it might be a slow moving target, but you know, we're still evolving and we always will be evolving. And there needs to be some time to let it uh, sometimes some of us catch up to that evolution, you know. Um, but it is a really interesting conversation you know and 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 the other thing too is just again culturally we're talking global for a second there are just different people do different things in different ways you know i mean we're specifically talking about western civilization i guess right i mean is that what we're talking about and then how do you deal with you know the rest of the world so to speak or i would break it down further in terms of like my own book and my own musings on this I would break it down to like white American guys because I don't feel comfortable saying like the experience of me growing up is the same as a black kid growing up or Latino kid growing up. Like, I don't know. I think there probably are similarities, you know, as Americans, as we grow up. Mm -hmm. But like when you talk about the phenomenon of mass shootings, for example, that's almost an entirely white male phenomenon. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm careful, like in, in the book that I wrote, Like I'm careful and it is addressed to my son as a letter to my son. And I'm pretty careful to say like, Hey, this is written to you, Mm -hmm. a pretty privileged dude growing up in the wilds of Connecticut. I mean, I have a library ladder, so I'm doing (laughs) okay. Right. 
That's kind of that's the that is the telltale sign. If somebody has a library ladder that looks like it's made out of, I, I don't want to. I it's some sort of metal. Yeah, and, and so this isn't and like this, hey, this we're is, just this throwing isn't a balsa wood library ladder. No, no, no and, that and looks it matches very sturdy. The trimmings on the window. That's right. So there's there's something there's a decorative sense here where here, that's, that's privilege. You. you can hear it. Oh, that's wow. unreal. Beautiful. That's, that's quality. quality. It's a quality library ladder that you're probably not going to find outside of Connecticut. If you like conversations with multi-talented comedians like today's episode with Michael Ian Black, who I'm in love with and, ha- and currently have a major crush on, it, one of my favorite episodes. Go check out the Daddy Issues archives and listen to our conversation with Joel McHale, who's also very buff and has an amazing hairline, where we discuss everything from sports to raising kids to OCD charity work and so, so much more. OCD charity work? No, like it's OCD comma charity work. Oh, and, I thought okay. it was like, oh my God, so we got to raise the money for, for, for this. OCD and then we got to go. No, no, no. Just check. Go go check it out. Go check it out. Well, with your with your dyslexia, though, that that was discovered at a young age, or was it not? Oh, I mean, no, it was not. They didn't just diagnose it. They said stuff like, "Well, he's a slow starter," which is not a medical term. And they told that to my face, and I just <laughs> thought, "Yeah, it seems seems about right." Uh, and we then had my older son tested, and the woman began describing all these. The things that everything that I go through and I was like, oh, you're describing me. And she just goes, I was wondering which one of you, whether it's your wife or you, because it's passed down. Wait, so you discovered your dyslexia through the, your son's diagnosis? Yes, uh, I was. Wow. Yeah, that was that was fun. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this short break with more from today's guest, Michael Ian Black. This is still so fucking fascinating. I love that you wrote this book. I love that we're talking about this. And even as we are talking about it, I have this feeling of, oh, gosh, I don't want to say the wrong thing on a podcast that then gets broadcast into the world. We have to tread lightly, I guess, you know, um, which say I think whatever, is good. Say whatever horrible shit you're thinking. I mean, well, you have no, a, it's you not even horrible. Excuse. You're off your meds. Like if you is- ever had a grace period, <laughs> this is it. This is true. But do you did you feel like you had to sort of tread lightly when you write about top subject matter and topics like this being sort of a privileged white male with a letter to your privileged white son or, or are you or can you let it fly? I, I, I tried to let it fly. I, I was only treading lightly in the sense of not wanting to speak for people that I couldn't speak for, you know, mm-hmm. but I didn't I didn't hold back in the things that I was saying to my son or hold back in, in what I was saying in the book. And, you know, I was also expressing some sympathy, surprising as I was writing, you know, surprising myself with the plight of white dudes, um, Mm. which is a totally on PC thing to say, like Mm -hmm. to express sympathy for white (laughs) dudes at all. It's like scorn and derision. Yeah. Um, for obvious reasons. And yet, you know, I can't help but, you know, pour one out for my homies, my poor mm-hmm. white homies who, <laughs> who are struggling at times to understand, like, how to 
how to navigate a world where they understand, I think a lot of us do understand intellectually, that we have been the recipient of good fortune. We have been the recipient of breaks that maybe other people didn't get. How do we navigate into a world where we acknowledge that and want to be good dudes? Mm. And at the same, until, until we're confronted with it, <laughs> affecting us personally. And then you go, well, whoa, I didn't mean it was going to affect me. Like, I'll give you an example. Like in my industry in show business, um, you know, I've been an actor for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, whatever it is. And it used to be up until very recently, like there were parts on TV shows, whatever it was, that when you're looking for the funny guy, like you're going to guys like me. You're going to like sort of funny, quirky, whatever, white dudes like me. The last four or five years, that's changed. Like mm-hmm. those parts, like they're all going, um, we want a diverse cast. We want to find like all kinds of new people. We want to cast uh, maybe a woman where we didn't think a woman would be. Like, And I feel that really keenly. Like there's a, there is a direct correlation between these large movements that are happening around the country and my own ability to earn an income. Mm-hmm. And as a white dude, you go, I support everything that's happening, and yet I'm freaking out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, I, it, it is an interesting proposition now if we're talking about now limiting your opportunity to work, I guess. So are you saying, A, you're going to go unhinged? Or, you know, if if we get to this point, are we further marginalizing these very white males that seem so pissed off that are doing the shootings that now all they were messed up before. And now all of a sudden we're in a world where they're basically supposed to, I don't know, feel guilt for white guilt. You know, are we further getting into a situation where they're, they're even more upset? It's really tough because, you know, you don't want to be, nobody wants to hear poor white guys, you know, nobody wants to like, you know, feel like white guys need to be hugged and told it's going to be all right when the rest of the culture has been screaming bloody murder for the past however many hundred years of our nation's right. existence. So yeah. there is a period of adaptation that is happening. Now, the way I look at it and try to look at it, in the short term, there may be, there will be suffering for people. There's all, there always is as change happens. Um, and look, you know, like, again, like I have a library letter, like I'm going to be fine. There's Mm -hmm. people in this country, dudes in this country who have seen, and again, going back to this Trump thing, manufacturing jobs disappear, industry, um, jobs disappear. Um, they've, they're seeing competition in those industries domestically that they, that they hadn't had to deal with before women, maybe they're opening up more and integrating more in ways that they hadn't before because they were kind of protective and insular. It has to happen. It has to happen. If we're going to achieve the dream of who we say we are, it Mm -hmm. has to happen. There has to be, you know, equal as equal, equal opportunities as we can get. And Mm -hmm. There's always going to be winners. There's always going to be losers. Right now, in this moment, um, a lot of white guys are panicking. And what's funny is a lot of times you'll see that it's white guys like me who are panicking, guys who 
um, maybe even aren't literally getting the shaft or suffering, but see the sort of coming uh, demographic changes and going, you know, where's that going to leave me? The chances Mm -hmm. are if you're good at your job and like you're competent and you're a good person and you're not antisocial and whatever else, the chances are you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I don't think a lot of guys understand, and maybe it's because we've been instructed to not understand this, is that the pie of, you know, let's say the economy, it's not one size. Like as more people do well, the pie grows as, as more people are brought into the economy and perform better and get more opportunities. Those people, some of them are going to start businesses. Some of them are going to be hiring. Some of them are going to hire you. Like the, 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 the pie will grow when everybody's, um, able to participate as fully as they can. It's a Mm -hmm. good thing ultimately, but it scares a lot of guys. And I understand Mm -hmm. that really do Mm -hmm. because it scares me. Yeah. So yesterday we're getting, so I, uh, people who listen to this podcast know that I say this probably every freaking show, but I have 24 and 21 year old daughters, but I have little boys. And, and so they're, they're almost three, they're twins and we're getting them ready to go to a dinner on Easter we're recording this on the Monday after Easter, and uh, neither one liked me putting stuff in their hair. They had bad head. They got up from a nap. They looked crazy, and I'm like, I'm just going to put some gel in your hair. They both freak out, and Blake, our bigger of the two, they're twins, but one's bigger, goes, oh, I don't want anything in my hair, and I'm going to hit you. <laughs> I'm like, what? This kid, I mean, you talk about coddled. So, I mean, no, no kid has ever been coddled before more than this kid. And and his reaction was that he verbalized. He's like, oh, I don't want anything in my hair and I'm, I want to hit you. <laughs> and and I guarantee you my daughters never said that about anything. Like now they may have been upset and they may have cried and they may but but not like I want to punch you in the face. So I I do think there is something different in the way you know males are brought into this world and and what's in the dna of a of a male compared to a female there's an aggression that i just didn't see with my two daughters that i i raised 20 years ago i would say i agree with all of that and i would only put the caveat on average meaning like boys on average i think do express more aggressive behavior but it's important to acknowledge I think that male behavior may, you know, ride on rise and fall on one bell curve and female behavior may rise and fall on another bell curve, but there is overlap. And it's, I think, important to acknowledge with our own kids and with the culture at large, like if you've got an aggressive little girl, she's still your little girl. If you've got a very shy and sensitive little boy, like he's still your little boy. Like, those there's there's plenty of uh the reason that's important is because we are so quick culturally to pigeonhole that's boy behavior that's girl behavior right and we know that that ends up having detrimental results in the long run um like i'll give you an example like my son growing up was probably much more oh i know he was acquiescent to somebody like putting hair gunk 
in his head when he didn't want it. And my daughter's the one who would have fought tooth and nail against something that she didn't want. She definitely was the more aggressive of the two. She probably still is. They're 20 and 17 now. Um, and you're still putting stuff in their hair. You have to. You, you know. do. You don't want to show up with that <laughs> head with your kids. It's a reflection on you. You don't want to look bad. So when when you're living the kind of upscale Connecticut lifestyle that I am, yes, and people come mm. over, you don't want the country clubs. Yes, you don't want your kids looking like schlubs. The sh- the social clubs, yes. the drinking clubs, the card days. Yes. The- the, the the hunting that with the fox and the hounds and the I know we are forever fox hunting where I am. <laughs> bring up bring up ponies and we just go to town and you yes. have your hair in place. Yes, mm. you do. Well, it's <laughs> funny because I've got with my two boys. I don't I don't really have I don't focus on specifics of how I'm going to parent them. I just. I just want them to be good people and I try to communicate with them and be super open and upfront. I don't hide anything from them. You know what I mean? And I have conversations with them and I have a teenager, a 13 year old whose friends now are dabbling in vaping and weed. And, and instead of just not talking about it, I'm like, Hey, look, here's the deal. Here's what's happening. You know, come to me, talk to me about what you're feeling. Uh, well, there hasn't been an opportunity yet. I don't think that they're those kinds of kids quite yet. Now, I probably bother them with the question like, hey, you smoke a weed yet, kid? You know, <laughs> and, and, and they're like, dad, no. I mean, Jesus, no, it's not. I'm, yeah, I mean, you know they're lying to you, right? I don't <laughs> think they are quite yet. <laughs> you know, I don't think they're lying quite yet. <laughs> I just want them to get. I just want them to get good weed. Wait, wait, when when you look back, Michael, and and you're you're out of the out of the puberty stuff with your kids. Now they're young adults. I when you look back on their childhood, would you? This is a totally general question and maybe unanswerable. But when you look back, do you think, as you sit here now, I I fostered a relationship where I'm more friends with my kids or. The dad disciplinarian, were they tough kids to raise? Were they easier kids to raise? Were you, you know, were you pulling your hair out? Were you not? I don't know. I, just generally speaking. My son mercilessly mocks me whenever he feels like I'm doing something dad-like. Mm-hmm. Whenever he get, he feels like I'm trying to be a dad, he just laughs in my face. Um, so I guess... <laughs> You mean like trying okay, to like give, putting on the dad like give it, voice? Like give advice, yeah. like, you know, the, the like yeah. son, sit down. Let me tell you, you know, right. that kind of thing. He's just like, shut up, you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> I guess maybe I failed on that front. No, I think that in a roundabout way, I think that's good. I think that's a, you know, like the kid's smart enough and wise enough to know, oh, here's my dad trying to be a dad. I'm going to just pull the place. plug out and just right. put him in his place because right. this like, isn't dad, working. I know who you are. Stop right. trying to play this role. You've been in movies. You write stuff. You're a funny guy. <laughs> this doesn't work on me. Try again. <laughs> right. So that's definitely true. My daughter, um, she 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 presented more challenges. Um, she's just a tougher nut to crack than my son was. But what about what about how you're dealing with sort of again? the landscape of today and the me too movement and women and all of that, because she was right in that, 
you know, spot of 15, 16, 17 years old. I mean, did you have conversations? It's tough with her. This is one of the reasons she's so tough is because she is so private. And so I don't know if secret is the right word, maybe, but she won't talk to us. Like she just yeah. will, like if we try to talk to her about anything with of any consequence, she, you know, she just, the mask comes over her face and she just will not participate. That being said, what I think I've learned is the way to get through to her is to talk around her mm. at the dinner table. Like my wife and I will have a conversation about the Me Too movement that doesn't involve her. You know what I mean? And she's just Smart. sitting there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Pretending to ignore us. And I, 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 I do think those conversations, despite the fact that she refuses to participate in them. Um, she won't chip in in the middle of the conversation? No, 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 almost never. <laughs> because my, my youngest of my two daughters is that way. But you, I, I, it's funny you say that because I don't think I realize that I do that. But I will intentionally bring things up in the group setting with her sister there, my wife, her little brothers, that, you know, is to generate, but, but my target is her. I want her to talk and event every once, you know, she'll get in and she's really wise. She's smarter than I am and she'll jump in, but, but that's brilliant. And I think I do that to some degree. I never thought about that until now, because if you go right in on her, she shut, you know, she has no patience for that and, and, and just will shut down. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's how my daughter is. Mm. Um, but do you give them – Do you, it's trust too. I mean I feel like you can only do so much as a parent and then they're 17, then they turn 18. Then it's like, okay, I hope you listen to me. I hope when we were talking around you, you soak some of this stuff up because now I just have to trust that you're going to go out into the world and make, make good choices, I guess. Yeah, or, you know, and that's a scary and- proposition. Well, part of part of my thinking as a parent is always like you, you do what you can and whether you trust them or not, it's almost irrelevant. That's a great point. That's a great point, though. Uh, it's, it's, it's not about trust. I mean, no, but, but, <laughs> but, but, but what you hope is or what I hope is not so much that I trust them, but that they trust myself and my wife enough so that if there is a screw up, if there is something they need, if they need help, if they, whatever it is, that they know we have their backs always, mm-hmm. you know, that, that the message we've sent to them throughout is you may do something stupid and you may piss us off and whatever, but at the end of the day, not even at the end of the day, anytime during the day, like mm-hmm. we're going to be here, you know, and mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's no situation that you, that you can find yourself in that we're not going to be there to support you and love you and, and do what we can. And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I hope having that kind of backstop in the, in, in your brain as a kid allows you to, to enter the world with slightly more confidence than you might have otherwise. And how much, how much of how you do things, how much of how you parent, uh, I guess, personally and with your wife, but how much of it is informed by your childhood, the way that you were raised, your relationship with your parents, you know, and how much of it is actually railing against the way that you were raised? <laughs> the combination. I grew up in a weird environment. Um, my mom and dad divorced when I was five because my mom was sleeping with the lady down the street. Mm. And 
So we, I, I grew up in a lesbian household at a time where there was really no cachet there. That wasn't like the mm-hmm. thing to do. <laughs> and so we grew up with her, my mom's partner and her son. And the partner was like uh, angry. She was abusive. Um, we still saw my dad. He died when I was 12. I didn't really get to know him very well. just as a, like, as a, as a guy. And so some of the things that I feel like were really wrong and destructive in the household that I grew up in, I've certainly tried to model against, but there were certain things that my mom did really well. You know, one of the things she did really well was she said, as, as simple as it is, I love you. She said it all the time. You know, she said it every day, multiple times a day. And you don't really, I didn't really hear it at the time, but I feel like it got absorbed into my DNA. I feel like, mm. and I feel like that's an important thing to have in the cells of your being to know that you are loved and to mm. not doubt that, to never question that. And I've been really conscious about that as my kids grew up to let them know. Like, just tell them, I love you. I love mm-hmm. you. I love yeah. you. I'll hold them, hug them, kiss them, whatever it is. Um, and my wife too. And I, and I mean, I don't tell my wife I love her, God forbid, but no, my, kid, my wife also tells them that they're loved. And and I, I, I do think that that's important. And, and I hope that pays dividends for them down the road. Now, do you, now this is maybe, you know, again, it's become sort of a, not a PC thing to say or do, but you know, as far as having a man in your life, as far as having that masculine energy, getting back to that, you know, um, which your dad passed away when, when you were 12, you had some of it, but you didn't have a lot of it, you know? And and again, today it's kind of a hard thing to say because you would probably, you know, Border, bordering on cancel, being canceled if you said that, oh, I, I, I needed a man in my life, you know? No, I'm Do clear you, about it. I'm very, I'm very, I'm really vocal about it. I, I really think it's important to have a man in your life as a guy, as a boy. Mm-hmm. I keenly felt the absence of it, you know? Um, not only because my dad died when he was young, but also because even when he was alive, we didn't see him. We saw him every other weekend and, and he worked like a dog and like, and the and in the very specific household that I was raised in, um, did not allow for a lot of male energy or uh, praise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Like I really, I really keenly felt the absence of it, and and even though I wasn't, I couldn't have put it into words at the time. I really questioned what. It meant to be a man. Like I, I, I really didn't know, you know, and, and I spent a lot of time like trying to figure that out for myself without any real guidance. Um, and, and, and there were men in my life who I think at times tried to reach out a little bit. And I always sort of pulled back. I think maybe I was afraid of developing like that kind of relationship with, with, with a with an with an adult man like as a as a mentor or something um and i regret that now but well, i think it's a, yeah be, 
Yeah, because it's scary almost. It's like what we're talking about right now. Like it's almost some. It's now. It's it's again. It's scary to say. Oh, you know, I need I need a man in my life. I masculinity is is still an important thing. Yeah. And of course, there's toxic masculinity. There's no doubt about it. But it's almost like toxic masculinity has just got masculinity has gotten lumped into those two words yep. you know that's why i don't that's why i like in my book i'm careful to say like i don't use that term for that reason yeah that because we don't have a healthy model of masculinity we don't quite know like what masculinity even really is yes that adjective toxic affixes itself so easily to it that mm-hmm. it, that that you're right like those two words have become really well lumped together and it, it sucks um so i try to avoid it because for that very reason. If you're enjoying this episode of Daddy Issues. I am. Don't keep it to yourself then, I Joe. Won't. Okay, good. Share the love. Tell a friend about Daddy Issues. Go subscribe to the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Go check out and subscribe to Daddy Issues. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. You don't want to miss the rest of our conversation with Michael Ian Black coming up right after this short break. Do you have anybody in your life right now that can give you a better picture of who your father was? Yeah. And, 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 um, I, I wrote another book before this one that was a little bit more about that. And, and I, I basically, I wrote about a, a book about my mom and myself, my, and, um, part of that involved doing more research into, into my dad. And I, I, and I do feel like I have a much better sense of him now as, uh, as an adult than, I'm, than in the last few years than I did up until now. It's funny when, when, you know, I'm 10 years older now than my dad ever was. And in a way that makes me feel oddly close to him. Like I feel mm. like in a, in, in a weird way, like I'm kind of carrying him with me now and, and having a life that he was unable to have. Um, and it's, it, 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 it's meaningful to me. It's meaningful to me to like feel that sense of my father walking with me as, as I move forward. And as I raise these kids and my kids go off to college, you know, stuff that he never got to see. Mm. It's, it's impactful for me. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, makes me emotional. <laughs> you know, I've had an interesting relationship with my father, so I, I've got all kinds of crazy shit, but you know um, yeah. Kurt came into my life when I was six or seven years old. And my mom was been divorced for two years, and I didn't have masculinity in my life. And then Kurt came in, so he gets snake masculine man. I get snake bliskin, (laughs) (laughs) and and it changed the trajectory of my life for sure. You know, without a doubt, Um, he showed me what masculinity is and was, and 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 there's others. There's different sides of it. Some of it I took in, and some of it I didn't want. You know. It's a great question is the definition. How do we define masculinity? It seems to be just put into a box of, you know, beat you over the head and drag you into the cave and fucking eat meat and get drunk. And that, that, that's just the, the, 
the, the stereotype of masculinity, but I think it's so much deeper than that, and there has not been a real exploration of it. You know, I, I, I just I'm fascinated with all that. It's right. I, I mean, in, if if I say to you at any given moment, "Be a man," like we all kind of instinctively know what that means, but we'd mm-hmm. have a hard time really defining it. Really defining, like, what is well, what does that mean? Be a man. I am a man by nature of my nature. Like that's who I am. It's how I think of myself. So if I do X. If I exhibit X behavior, am I no longer a man? If I exhibit Y behavior, am I no longer a man? I mean, it's nonsense on the face of it. And we've mm-hmm. and, and the parallel is we've done so much work culturally with women that we now understand, I think most of us, that if a woman exhibits strength, physical or otherwise, it does not diminish the fact that she's a woman. In, in a lot of ways, it enhances it. We celebrate strong women, right? We, mm-hmm. we want our, our girls to grow up to be strong women. And yet, if you flip that with guys and you say, what a, 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 what would be the, the flip? A vulnerable, a tender, whatever it is, boy, some part of us culturally is still considering that boy suspect. Some mm-hmm. part of us is still going, well, you know, is he is he? How is he going to be as a man? Is he going to be gay? Is he going to be weak? Is he going to be whatever? Mm. Not ever recognizing that that part of him is as valid as the strength in the woman or the strength in him. Like we're all Mm. full human beings. Like we all have all of this within us. And it's important to acknowledge, recognize, celebrate, and appreciate like we're all fully dimensional. So when you say be a man, like, I don't know what that means. Right. <laughs> to man up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That wow. I, 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 I've never thought of it in those terms. And you're right. When you, it, it, you always hear the phrase toxic masculinity and masculinity can be the proper way to treat your spouse, the proper exactly. way to uh, discipline your kid, the, you know, or be a man like that's not supposed to hurt. Well, it's okay to let that hurt. And yes, it does hurt. My legs hanging off, whatever it might be. <laughs> I can't just rub dirt on it and and say I'm now I'm a man. And I, I it's it's interesting, Michael, to watch you talk and to to see the work that you've done. And I wonder if there was ever a shift with you, if if you know, over a period of time, you woke up and you said, I, I can do more. And this is not to diminish everything you did early on in your career and in your life, but sounds but like you I, sounds like maybe you are. It's fine. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but I, I feel like you you got a platform because of your comedy, and you got your platform because of your acting ability and everything else. And you said, I, I also want to give you my thoughts on where we are as a country, where we are as parents, where we are as uh, as men and women in, in society. I, I, I th- that's a compliment. I, I, I don't, I'm not diminishing one. I'm just saying it, it feels like if, if somebody sees, you know, for the guy that was Bradley Cooper's best on screen kiss and wet hot American summer. Now we're talking about pretty heavy stuff. I mean, that, that there has to have been, you know, some sort of, of mental shift or philosophical shift with you. What happened with me specifically was that I had built the early mid part of my career on being sardonic and sarcastic and being very dry 
And that had served me pretty well. Um, I was making a living doing that. But when I got married and when I started having kids and when I started, I started to realize like that very dry in a way, masculine persona that I had created from, I mean, nobody ever accused me of being too masculine, but that guardedness, that's a, that's a sort of classic masculine thing. It started to feel more and more imprisoning. It started to feel like the person who I was portraying was not the fullness of who I was. And I wasn't comfortable with that anymore. And I needed to find a way to get out of it. I needed to find just psychologically, I needed to figure out a way to be the person that I wanted to be with my family and for my own mental well being. And that meant for me figuring out ways to reconstruct myself personally, which had a direct effect on my, the way I presented myself professionally as well. So you, you had to make that choice though, to reconstruct yourself. It, it was a choice. It was absolutely yeah. a choice. Yeah. How has, has that enhanced, do you think your performance? Has that enhanced your writing, your comedic writing? Um, or In a lot of ways, it was like a terrible professional decision. <laughs> Because, yeah. <laughs> because there's always, I, as we were talking, I was I was literally ripping off my toenail, and now I'm bleeding all over the floor. Oh, um, good. Well, be a man, uh, for I God's sake. Did, did, did you hear me crying about it, Joe? Did you hear me crying about it? <laughs> I'm wiping blood off the floor. Um, oh, my God. And I'm licking my fingers. Um, uh, and I forgot the question. Just, oh, just oh, do you was, think it's enhanced what you've done on screen or is it, in some ways it, was a it bad made deci- you think twice? In some ways, it was a bad professional decision because there'll always be a market for that kind of like super deadpan, um, sarcastic dude. And I can still, you know, do that. But there's less of a market for like, you know, middle-aged sensitive guy who's questioning everything and doing so in a kind of effeminate manner. Like there's less of a market for that. I think it's growing, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I I, I think that you are ahead of your time and give it a couple of years and then you will be in the sweet spot of that. Once the bank repossesses the library ladder. Yeah. Have you made all your your payments on that yet? (laughs) The the ladder is paid for. Okay. (laughs) All right. Good. That's all you'll be clinging to is they, is they take everything else away. Not my ladder. Not the ladder. Not the ladder. Um, I'll be carrying my Jesus with the cross walking through the streets of Nazareth or Jerusalem, wherever the hell he was walking. I should know this the day after Easter. I'm Jewish. Guys, I'm Jewish. It's so funny, though, to think about Wet Hot American Summer and some of those characters. I mean, you talk about, like, either toxic masculinity or just the quintessential dumbass. Oh, yeah. That, that was a movie about, like, these – well, the, everybody's kind of it's one of the but, one of the great fucking comedies, honestly. I mean – it's so what? great. It's so smart. Uh, it's so dry. It's so, fucking funny. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's just you got to look back and go, wow, that was that was a different that was a different time. Oh different yeah, but, but but I mean, it was but it was made by people who were like looking at camp movies of the eighties and you know embracing what we liked about it and also un, you know how ridiculous they were. Yeah, how ridiculous it was and how and how bad a lot of the behavior was and and all of that. 
No, I know, but again, it's again at the time it wasn't bad behavior, I guess. But now, no. you know, you looking back on it, it is, and and that's getting into this whole sort of cancel culture where the pendulum is swinging mm-hmm. so far that there's even there's even a, a, a backlash in a way. It's starting to happen where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, let, hold on, hold on, let's let's get let's get straight here, you know. And it's not equitable, honestly, because if you have if you have already created a persona prior to this cancel culture of irreverence and being dark and saying things that are un pc you're almost free i mean howard stern is like an idol of mine he he, he will never be canceled but if you go back in his archives i mean it's crazy shit oh yeah you know but it but howard stern wouldn't be doing the things that he was doing now that then now and also sure. one in particular i feel like has been very sort of upfront about his own like evolution just as a dude, you know? I mean, he can still be crass and whatever, but I feel like, you know, oh, he, nowadays he's a lot more thoughtful than he was. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but that's the thing is there's probably, there's a lot of people who have changed, you know, who are more thoughtful because right. that's just how we are now. And, but they will get picked apart from their past. And oh yeah. Destroyed. No, I, get, I, I, I still get that all the time. I mean, I've made atrocious jokes in the mm-hmm. past. Um, and you know, I get reminded of them on a nearly <laughs> basis. And what are you going to do? I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. that's what I did. And I, do you been, feel like do you feel like you have to apologize for those jokes? I would apologize for things if like I had offended somebody specific, I would absolutely apologize. Or if I had offended like um I guess like if I had made like some some sort of horrific, you know, a, a transphobic joke or something, I guess I would apologize for it now. I I fortunately I haven't I fortunately I don't think I did and I don't think mm-hmm. I had to. But the one thing that I will say about comedians and the idea of cancel culture and the idea of political correctness, one of the upsides I think of it is that comedians in particular are having to be far more thoughtful about their material. Mm. And I think that can only be a good thing. You know, there's, um, there was a time (laughs) where you could get on stage and just be like, hey, that guy's gay, and get a laugh. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, I think we're past that, and I think that's good from a, from just like a craft point of view, from like, not you know, set aside a human point of view, just from a craft point of view, like just think about what you're saying, say, do some, you know, have intentionality, have purpose to it. Um, and I think, I, I think that's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. I, I wrote a book and and was talking about the difference in my profession, just sports announcing and stuff that my dad said. You know, I followed him into the business and stuff that he said in the seventies and the, in the eighties that that I don't know that he would have finished the game <laughs> if he did it now. And somebody interviewed me from the Village Voice and said, "It seems like you're saying that was a better time." And I'm saying, and my answer was, "No, I'm just saying it was a different time." Yeah. And it's my dad, and I'm wistful for my dad and some of the funny lines that he had during the course of a broadcast. But it's changed, and that's good, especially as being a father of 
of two girls and being married to somebody that's a female in the sports broadcasting business. I, I am much more aware of why that stuff was not right back then. It just was a different time. And I think you have to, that's okay to be able to say that. The different doesn't mean that it's better, no. better back then. And I'm with you. I, I think it's it's a good thing that we're more aware of the shrapnel that comes out uh, if if you're saying something off the cuff that may really hurt somebody and, and uh, you know, as a father to two girls, I, that's a good thing. Yeah, it can't. It can't not be, I don't think. I mean, I think we still have the freedom to express ourselves however we want. We understand that there may be different consequences if we say things that are hurtful. Um, and I bet your dad or any of our dads had they been sort of un- undergoing the cultural shifts that we're undergoing and, and, and being made aware of pain that they might be causing, like nobody wants to cause pain. Like they, no. you know, they would make adjustments to, 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 to handle that, you know, you, you, because you, because most of us want to be good people. Exactly. So Michael, cr- creatively. What what where are you at right now? What are you what are you doing? I know you got your podcast, but just you know, are which you, is are you, genius? Can I? Yeah, can you amazing. just real quick? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go do. I, get, on, get on that one. Please just explain to our listeners what your podcast is, because I can't imagine how the uh, the idea came up. But the idea that you're reading this book mm-hmm. <laughs> over time that your wife refused to throw away, and then Fucking making genius. comments is just so smart and so yeah. funny. Uh, so the podcast is called Obscure, so named because the book that you're referring to is Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy, which was sitting on one of these bookshelves for over 20 years with nobody reading it. And me repeatedly saying, can I please throw this away, um, along with other 19th century paperbacks that nobody's ever going to read. No, 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 you can't. It's a classic. I'm like, well, there was more than one copy made. Like, we're not destroying the only copy. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, I was undergoing one of my periods of unemployment, uh, certainly not my first, and I just was looking for something to do. So I just sort of on a whim said, all right, I'm going to do a podcast where I read this book out loud and comment on it as I go, having never read it, knowing nothing about it, knowing that there would be almost no audience for this, mm. because why would there be? Um, and so the, so the title obscure is a play both on the title of the book and on, on, uh, uh, my own career and on the fact that this is never going to find an audience. So 75 great fucking idea. Sorry, go ahead. It's such a dumb, it is, it is, it's dumb, but it's it's genius. You know, let me ask you a question though. Have you, have you learned, I mean, reading this book for the first time and commenting as you go in real time, have you actually taken shit from it where you you know, uh, from a deeper perspective, like like learn something about yourself. <laughs> so I finished it. So that was 75 episodes of okay. Thomas Hardy, Jude the Obscure, uh, and ended up feeling like, oh, I get why it's a classic. Like, it's a great book. Um, and like, I would go pretty deep. Like, I would, I was not just like making, you know, dumb jokes. Like, I was doing my best to kind of analyze it as I was going, knowing, you know, like, I don't know anything about anything. Um, So there was humor in that, I hope. So then 
we took, I took a little break from it. And now uh, season two is uh, I'm reading uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm. which I never had any, des- I, I never had any desire to read just like with Judy Obscure, no desire really didn't know what it was about other than the idea of Boris Karloff going like that. And it's a much different book than I expected, but it's great. Great. That book's it. great. I love like that it? book. I didn't, I, I, let me say this. I, Oh. Up until recently, I'm I'm a little more than halfway through. I, I didn't really like it. Now I'm starting to dig it. It took me about half of the book, though. What What would it mean to you if someday there's some, uh, you know, college graduate degree that's based on the Thomas Hardy uh, book, and your podcast is is seminal to the learning experience of? Those <laughs> Do I receive the any kind of royalty? Royalty. Royalty. <laughs> Doctorate, you're Merchand- there. Is there a merchandising opportunities? There's merchandising. And yes, there's then I'm all for it. Thomas I'm Hardy, the lunchbox. The there's two Tom Hardys. There's Bane, <laughs> and then there's this guy. I'm the other Tom Hardy. Yeah, I, I would. I think there's opportunity here, and I would start pitching it. Have your people pitch it to Harvard. I would go. I would start Ivy League. Okay, yeah, I think that's smart. I'm going to in, do in that. the neighborhood. Oh, that's very very smart. I'm going to do that. Um, just, Are you uh, you acting? You, you doing anything? Oh, I'm so unemployed. All of I know. So huh? very. I mean, I know. you know, this whole last year was just a disaster for the yeah. for the globe and for my industry in particular. It's starting to pick up a little bit now, um, but it is a lot yeah, of it's, tough, it's a lot of sitting around ha- and 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 having plenty of time to do podcasts. Mm-hmm. If, if somebody says, "Hey, you want to be on my podcast?" I I can make. I have time for that. <laughs> well, thank you for making time for us, yes, man. I'm, my pleasure. I'm sorry. It, yeah, this was this was honestly one of my favorite. I, I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. This was a really important conversation. It's shit that I think about as a father raising my boys and my my little girl, who's by the way tough as nails. We didn't even get into that because she's so feminine, but she's got her two brothers, so she's badass, you know, with a dress on, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just been really freeing to talk about this. I mean, I've yet to even have this discussion. Joe doesn't have the mental capacity to deal with <laughs> these kinds of things. So it's, it's uh-huh. nice to. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, uh, thank you, brother. This is really, yes. really fun. Thanks, Michael. Oh, yeah. No, my total pleasure. It was really fun for me, too. Good. All right. Get on that ladder. Go sliding around with your bleeding toe. All right. We'll move. Spray blood all over those white shelves. All right, man. Be well. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Thanks. All right. See you, buddy. Bye. How fucking great is he? Jesus. He's great. He's very smart. And and that's what I always heard from Rudd um, about him. And and you can see it, you know, with what he's done and he's on the state and all these different kind of higher brow comedy. And 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 when when I said it and then I started thinking back on me saying it as we were discussing wet hot american summer uh it, the brilliance in it is shining a light on kind of those old camp movies and and it really is all the characters are morons but but that's the joke and they're making fun of the whole idea of these stupid yeah, camp movies Just, by the way i love too like meatballs yeah, was dude. a great movie. Meatballs uh, is the greatest. I mean, you know, that's uh, Bill Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And Woody the Wabbit and all these, <laughs> you know, Fink and the the two camps and the rich camp and the poor camp and all that. Mm-hmm. I Like, I loved that movie, but it is kind of ridiculous and some mm-hmm. of the characters are, are so overblown with their... Yeah. Act. He's just... Um, I like the topics that he's talking about. I think that they're important topics. I, I, the topic of masculinity, I, again, not just boxing it into this stereotype of what it is, talking to our boys, you know, giving them some insight as to the shifts that are happening culturally and not just putting them out there in the world. You know, I think it's important to pay attention. And uh, he's shining a light on that. I, and it's different. It's it's not mainstream right now. Masculinity is is definitely, again, that toxic masculinity has seemed to take over all masculinity. And that's not fair. You know? <clears throat> yeah, no, you can't generalize that. And I think right, masculinity right. can be a positive. And of course. Can, and is, a, is an important part of who we are as, as men. And, and mm-hmm. that's okay to talk about. Yes, yes it is. We're middle-aged, or I'm more middle-aged than you are, white guys and privileged white guys. And so it becomes hard to even really open up that line of conversation because it's like, well, we don't really haven't experienced anything because of who and what we are. But we've experienced what we've experienced. You know what I mean? Like, I talk about this all the time with, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I was, I'm lucky as fuck, man. Number one, born white born to a celebrity parents it's not lost on me but that doesn't mean that i can't feel pain and hurt and discomfort and confusion and trying to figure my life out you know right it's and those are all emotions that you seem to experience while on the toilet yeah exactly well you know when you're pushing that hard you get emotional maybe that's what'll make you sweat eventually (laughs) Just some butthole sweating. Yeah, just straining <laughs> to to get something out. Like, do not ever go the Metamucil route. You need to, you need to develop. If, if for every hemorrhoid you develop, mm-hmm. another 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 pore stone opens. across the stream. Yes, of, of yeah, eventually like, being um, able to sweat will be put in place. Yeah, it's like for every angel. What what is the Christmas movie? <laughs> Every time a bell rings, a bell rings, it's a wonderful life, right? So it's a wonderful life for my sweat glands. It's every time you get a hemorrhoid, a new sweat pore opens up. (laughs) (laughs) You talk about dumbing down something that really has you off your game. I I apologize for even getting into that area. Nah, it's good. It's good. This is what I love about our podcast, dude. We go from one weird fucking topic to the next, and we get serious and we get dumb. You know, we're just doing, we're doing us, Joseph. But that was I need fun. a library ladder back behind me. You do. I, I just, I just need a library first before. I well, get these a are just shelves. I mean, it's not. I'm not in a library. No, I know. Shelves. You're in built-ins. Rio's room. I know because, you know, my daughter was sleeping in my bed last night and I don't want to wake her up, so. It looks like a Care Bear room. It is. It's it's very colorful. It's like a big Easter egg exploded in here. 
It is, and it's it's a purple wall with pink paint on the trimming up top. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. what kind of a bed? Is that like a red bed? It's like a turquoise bed with like a pinky frame. You know? Oh, that's pink. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, if that's like dark red, I can see you dragging that into your room for you and Aaron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> dark red leather bed. Yes. Oh, that's a good that's a good choice. That's more you and Michelle. You I think you know you got your more of sort of the patent leather kind of couple. You know? I do, but, I do like some patent leather. Yeah. I I don't yeah, we don't really have no, any. See, that, that that's qualifies. more your speed. It's like outfits, patent leather, strappy things, you know, sort of like that. Aaron and I are more, you know, ripped tank tops and cute little boy shorts. You know what I mean? Yeah, but what does she wear? <laughs> you did it. <laughs> you did it. Let's end on it. that. Yeah, let's end it. right there. I did it. I love seeing you in a ripped tank top. Uh, boy, boy shorts. <laughs> I look cute. Uh-huh. Um, All right. All right. Well, thank you, Joe. Uh, sorry I yelled at you. but <sighs> It's okay. I'm okay. Okay, you're okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Good. I love right, you. Bye. Listen to Daddy Issues on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Daddy Issues is a production of Cavalry Audio and iHeartMedia, produced by Margot Carmichael. Sound engineering and editing by Josh Windish. Executive produced by Joe Bach, Oliver Hudson, Dana Brunetti, and Keegan Rosenberger. <laughs> 